Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Paul Conti. Paul Conti is a psychiatrist, a trauma expert, the former chief resident at Harvard, and the author of Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. During our conversation, Paul talks about the precise definition of trauma, something that's overwhelmed one's coping mechanisms and changes the brain, his own personal experience with trauma, the state of mental health care in America, how we know one has experienced trauma, how trauma often leads to hidden shame that prevents healing, what trauma is not, how he has stepped outside of mainstream healthcare practices to help his patients, and suggestions for mitigating the negative effects and suffering caused by trauma. Paul is extraordinarily open and informed about the subject of trauma. It is his view that having a holistic approach to treatment and taking the time necessary to establish rapport with his patients is key in understanding and addressing the root cause of his patients' ailments. This was one of my favorite conversations in a long time, and it ends on a note of hope. By providing some tools that are already available for those in need, and noting tools that may come in the near future to help human beings become well. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Paul Conti. Paul Conti, um, it's such an honor for me to do all these interviews, but particularly this one. Uh, welcome to the show. It's, it's really wonderful to have you and uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate your kind words and I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you. You got it. I wanted to start with um, a quote that I wrote down last night from an interview that you did with Rich Roll, I think about a year ago, and I thought it might be a nice jumping off point for one of the themes I think we're going to talk about during this conversation, which is trauma. And I thought this was very eloquently said by you, and I thought it might be a, a nice uh, transition into that space. And this is from you. Okay. Quote, something happens, this is about trauma, something happens acute or over time that overwhelms our coping mechanisms, it then leaves us different as we move forward. And that yes. difference is rooted in brain biology. Mm -hmm. There's actually a change in the brain. And that change, that change pushes some things that we know about ourselves out of our mind. We forget things that we knew, and we then ground through the world in a different way, in a way that comes more through the lens of vulnerability and vigilance. And we often do not know that those changes have happened inside of us. It's a change in life narrative in terms of what do I think about myself and what do I think of my life story? You made a comment after this quote that I thought might be helpful just to clarify, which is, you know, it seemed like in the, you were telling of the definition of trauma that it's really by definition something that resilience cannot prevent one from experience, that trauma supersedes or goes beyond human resilience by its very definition. And I'd love to give you an opportunity to comment on that and any other details that you think might be interesting or important to add to the quote that I just read about trauma. Sure, sure. No, th thank you for raising that quote because it gives me an opportunity to say 
you know, if we're communicating about things, we have to define the words, right? Mm. And, you know, trauma could have as many meanings as whoever's, as people who are saying it, right? So we want to define, okay, what is this that we're talking about? How do we want to define it, right? And, and it makes sense, I think, because we want to understand it and we want to be able to practically intervene, right? Mm. To, to, to look at trauma as the, what does overcome our coping skills, right? Which includes our resilience and then changes us. Mm. So the idea is it's not a soft concept, right? Because the thought can be sometimes like, oh, trauma is anything that happens to somebody they don't like, or we all have trauma. And, and it's like, well, no, what we're trying to define here is something that's medical, something that's neurobiological that, that says, look, there's a threshold that can be reached where we change, and, and we understand that this can happen from acute events. Like that's where it's much more obvious, right? Mm. You know, someone who witnesses a, a terrible accident, loses a loved one, you know, something really bad happens and that person, the person's assaulted, right? That person feels so differently afterwards and it's a very acute change. Mm. And sometimes it happens that way, but sometimes our resilience and our coping skills get overwhelmed a little at a time. You know, it's the multiple hit hypothesis where your resilience takes a hit, takes a hit, takes a hit. And then there can be something that pushes the person over the edge or it can be chronic trauma, seeing denigrated, marginalized, seen as less than bullied, all, all the things that happen to people that over time can take their toll. You know, in Portland, there are these beautiful Japanese gardens and you, know, you see where there'll be a fulcrum and there's a drop, a drop, a drop, and then eventually it shifts on the fulcrum. And we can be like that too, where the trauma is inculcated into us. And at a certain point in time, we change. And the point I'm really driving at is that this is medical. It's not a soft thing. It's changes in people where vigilance levels change, our light, our narratives change, our memories change. Because you may have a memory of the same thing before and after, but it was positive what you attach to it and feel about it before and negative after. So these are real changes in people which can have dramatic impact, can change the course and do. And do we see this all the time where the course of someone's life is changed? And, and often they don't even know it. They don't know that they've changed because what are you trying to use to assess the change? The mechanism inside of us that's changed. But from the outside, doing the work I do, or doing clinical work, you, know, you, you just see like, oh, that is happening over and over and over again. And I see it happening in myself. I read about the, some of the traumas I've been through and the surprise of like, whoa, I am different and I need help after this. Mm. It's such an important point. And I don't think I'd ever heard trauma quite defined in that way. And I know you're a psychiatrist and I know some about your, your personal story as well, which I'd love to get into during the conversation. How do we know when somebody has really experienced technically a traumatic event? Is it literally something, as you just said, you're trying to use your own system that has changed to determine this, which seems almost impossible, if not totally impossible how do you as a clinician, as a doctor, make that assessment um, to conclusively know that somebody has really experienced a technically official traumatic experience? 
Mm-hmm. Even though it's not, as it is often not obvious, sometimes mm-hmm. it is obvious, but there are a lot of signs that, that we can take stock of it. And sometimes the person can take stock of it themselves. Mm-hmm. We tend to ignore a lot of warning signs inside of us. Something hurts and it hurts and we might ignore it for a while. Humans do this, so we certainly can do this with mental health things. But people often know, like, is your sleep different? Do you feel different as you navigate the world? You know, when when I had these bad traumas early on in life, you know, I realized I thought differently about myself. I could tell, like, I was confident and I thought I could do things and I don't feel, I feel on the back foot of life. And I could tell that change in me, but it's a very scary change, right? So, so it's often hard to say something and acknowledge something if you don't know what there is to do about it and you're afraid of it. And because trauma generates feelings of vulnerability, feelings of shame, feelings of guilt, we tend to then keep it inside and not acknowledge the warning signs, the signs of change we may see in ourselves. And people can often see from the outside, too, that that person is different. They're more distant. They're behaving differently. They're less gregarious. Like There's a lot of things we can see that that are markers. And we can also do things to investigate, like writing a life narrative. How, how do I feel if I write out my narrative and I read that, or I talk to someone who's trusted about my life? Does that sit with me like, yeah, that's what you think of yourself, or am I surprised by it? Hmm. So there, there are a lot of markers that people can be aware of themselves or from the outside we can see. But the, the huge problem is we tend to turn the other way, including about other people. Like sometimes it's hard to tell someone, hey, you seem different and I'm concerned about you. Mm-hmm. Right? So we, we we often miss you know, the opportunities to, to help someone or to help ourselves. And the, and the fact that trauma reflexively makes guilt and shame is, is a, is a tremendous barrier to getting help, you know, and when we lost my brother to suicide, you know, I, I realized I, I had to stop. And I was like, I feel ashamed of this, mm. but it, but it like, took time for me to realize like this is inside of me a sense of guilt and a sense of shame, and I wasn't carrying this burden anymore. So I wasn't I wasn't carrying this burden before, and, mm. and now I am, and and I, that's really different. And I had to be really struck by that in order to think I need to get some help about this because I don't actually feel that I or my family should feel ashamed. Yeah. But I yeah. but I feel it anyway. Right. I don't believe that we should feel, but I feel it and I can't just make that go away because I logically don't believe it to be true. And that's what clicked if I was in an early stage of earlier stage of life in my mid twenties and not gone to medical school yet. But it was that that, that triggered in me we have to get some help now. Yeah. I know in reading your uh, online biography that one of the words that's associated with you know your practice and your interest is holistic. And I think one of the things that's very admirable about y- your career just in becoming more familiar with it is how open you have been about you know your own life. And I think it's it's rare to find someone with your background and your credentials and your position in life to be so forthcoming about you know, your own personal experience, not being this distant figure, this distant doctor, um, but but somebody that is much more relatable because of, you know, what you've gone through. And you you alluded to this just a second ago about what happened with your brother. And if you're open to it, I wanted to see if we could give a little time and space to, you know, talking through your own 
journey and uh, obviously the trauma that it sounds like you you experienced with what happened with him and then how you worked through that. Because I think for a lot of people who might be listening to this, that that's really right. It's, it's hope that they're looking for and um, uh, anything that you might have uh, to share with that, I think would be extremely valuable. I'm happy to do that. Happy to do that. Yes. Yes. Um, so one, um, maybe a place to, to start it is there's a lot written about like post-trauma resilience, how like mm-hmm. things that are traumatic can make us stronger. And that can be a part of our stories too. But it is not true when people say, oh, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think that is absolutely not true. Whatever doesn't kill you can almost kill you and leave mm-hmm. you a lot weaker or leave you changed or leave you not understanding yourself or lost in confusion and fear and guilt. So in order... To, to have things be better after trauma, the vast majority of times we, we have to have an understanding of what has happened. So for me, one of the things that happened afterwards was a, a sort of shutting down of my feelings about my own potential, right? what I could go out and do in the world or what I could achieve. And to, to sort of confront that in therapy, like, what does this mean? What does it say about me? And what does it not say about me? Right? Let me get to a place where there was some setting free to some degree after the trauma, because I was in my mid-20s and had a job that was like a good job to have. I was working in the consulting field and, and it was a good job to have. And I felt like, oh, I can't change and do anything different. I have to keep doing this because I felt like so old, right? But you know, I was in my mid-20s. I didn't have the perspective that you have later in life. Mm-hmm. And through the therapy process, it set me free in some ways to go do things I wanted to do. Like I'd been thinking, do I want to go back to medical school? And and on the other side of that, I thought, wow, we have a much better understanding of what really matters in life and and that I have I'm young enough and I'm 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 alive, I'm healthy. I, I you know, if I really want to go do this thing, then I, I can go do it. And I and I did. I had to go back to college and take the pre-med classes I didn't mm-hmm. take. Like I went through it, but but in order to get to that place where there can be a silver lining even of the worst trauma, because it can set us free to do things that are inside of us to do, and also to want to make some change. It was inside of me that, hey, this, this is just so awful. And I, I, I maybe I want to understand more and help people in some way. I didn't really know what that meant. It didn't mean for me, I'm going to go be a psychiatrist, but the idea that maybe I'll be a physician and I can kind of work against you know, just badness and illness and loss, you know, but I had to get to it by really confronting the guilt, the shame, the fear, the vulnerability, you know, by by having some help so that the trauma didn't shut me down like it does a lot of people who, Mm. who on the other side of trauma, again, being assaulted, losing a loved one, whatever it may be, or even chronic denigration kind of are scared of the world and, and, and don't have the confidence in themselves that they once had. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's the person's story. Hmm. I mean, that can go on for the rest of people's lives. And that's what one of the things we're absolutely trying to prevent, right? It's not just the really bad outcomes, but it's the outcomes where potential is not reached. Um, The generative drive of striving and doing and being in the world as best we can be, whether that means growing a garden, finding a relationship partner, being a parent, having a better job, going hiking, whatever it may mean, know that, that, 
that that we are in a place where we appreciate what is inside of us and we we want to express it and we feel that we can really be in the world in the way we wish and and that's often a branch point in the road where trauma kind of takes the person down that kind of darker more overgrown path and it doesn't have to be that way and i started seeing over and over and over in my clinical work even when i was still in training what's at the root of this hmm. whether it was substance dependence or it was violence it was depression it was panic attacks it was poor role performance someone's not being the kind of parent they want to be or they they seem like someone who could have a partner in a relationship but they don't and 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 you start seeing the root of so much of that if you really trace back was ah the root of that is trauma and then if we would go at the trauma like let's try and understand this what happened? How did things change? Then we could make things better. And I think that's the real litmus test. Like if you think that's the answer and you go and you try and understand it and help people move forward from it, does that work? Mm. And the and the answer was a uniform like, yes, mm. yes, that works. I mean, not in every case, right? But the majority of times we can make a change then that we will not make if we're just looking on the surface. Right, the idea of well, let's take an inventory of symptoms. I guess you're depressed. Okay, you have this symptom, that. Let's check a bunch of boxes. Okay, now let me give you a medicine. I mean, that's not that's not helping someone, right? That's putting a bandaid on something that 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 may need much much more than that. So if we didn't stay on the surface and we go deeper, can people heal? Can people change? Can people be happy with their lives and excited about their lives when they weren't before? The answer to that is yes. There's a quote that I heard you say, which is related to this, which I love, which is, I think you're you're relating this to medicine in general, or um, just in terms of how the system attempts to uh, deal with these symptoms, which is, quote, people tend to, quote, polish the hood if there's a problem in the engine, yes. which I thought was a good way of, of, of putting that. And I wonder with you know, with your own personal story, if we can get a, a little specific with this, because I know just in listening to prior interviews that you've given that, you know, psychotherapy, we were talking before we started recording that you're from New Jersey and that psychotherapy was not something encouraged in any way, as I understand it from your, your background. Um, I'd love to know how how you came to know that there was a change in you after your brother's suicide, if it was other people kind of cluing you into this, you know, Paul, you're, you're a different type of person now than you had been your entire life. Or if you felt that, how did you come to that conclusion personally? Well, I was very good. Like a lot of people are at faking normalcy. Mm. And that's why if something has happened to someone and they seem like they're the same, if you really you care about them or you, mm. you want to help them, ask anyway, because a lot of people are very good at that about uh, of giving the outward presentation they want to give, and and think about the drive of guilt and shame. I mean, you don't want to seem any different if something has happened that you feel ashamed of, right? So a lot of people can maintain the external presentation of self, and and I was good at that. I was good at that. Mm. So it, it really came from inside me of not being able to deny that that things were really, really different. And I wasn't recognizing myself and I was making unhealthy decisions. There's a lot of anger in me. Some of it was going outward. Some of it was going inward. My healthy behaviors 
I was not engaging in as many healthy behaviors. I was drinking too much. I had, you know, relationships weren't good. And I could see this, this isn't good. And I have to look at this because I am different. Hmm. Now I had what might seem like, it may seem like this doesn't make sense, but I had an advantage there, which was that the trauma was so acute. Hmm. So the thought would be, oh, look, losing a family member to suicide, that is that would seem like that's worse than say the, the, someone being chronically undermined, wh- wh- whether it's sexual orientation or it's 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 gender orientation, it's it's socioeconomic. We say it seems worse to lose someone to suicide. In some ways, the acuteness of it is, hmm. but the the danger is with chronic trauma is people notice less the 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 changes in them. For me, it was hard not to see that I was different because there was like a moment when things changed and I couldn't really deny that or cover it up to my, to myself, which is why, of course, acute traumas are so important and they can make these changes in us and we need to help people, but chronic traumas and vicarious traumas where people can have these changes inside of them through the experience of other people's trauma. Hmm. We know this is true. These are medical facts. They're not soft assertions, right? So it's it's not just the acute traumas that we need to pay attention to if we're really going to help people, but it is the chronic traumas and the vicarious traumas too, because it is less obvious from the inside and from the out ha- that those changes have occurred in us. Hmm. We touched on this uh, earlier in the conversation, but you know, in terms of You've been doing this a long time. I think your you know you, your career has been decades long now at this point, and I know you have a lot of experience with this. But Thank you. I, I've heard you mention that getting to, and this is partly why I, I love your work so much, is that you seem to be interested in getting to root cause, um, like the center of the bullseye with what is actually you know causing human illness or human disease, and that takes time i'm sure to be able to sift through somebody's biography to learn about them and then try to get to root cause what kind of practices do you have in place to try to unpeel the onion to get to the the heart of the matter with people that uh, come to you and and are suffering and looking for the the reason for that yeah so when a per- you have to build rapport and trust with someone's such a relationship building. If you build comfort, you build trust, you build a safe space, then you can engage in inquiry. I, I, I think a lot of it is, is common sense combined with practicality. Hmm. It was very helpful to me, for example, to have minored in math, hmm. w- which is very much about like, let's understand what's going on here and, and prosecute forward to an answer. Hmm. And, and that's not just about pure math, but a lot of things in life operate that way, if if they can operate that way, if we look at them that way. It's not just, oh, it's a mess and there's so much going on. Like, no, no, let's stop and think about this and try and understand this. And I often say, and I I think it's very true that of all the education that I've been through, probably that math minor has helped me the most for life. Mm. Is It says you can figure out a lot more things than you might think. And, and a process of building trust, building safety, and rational inquiry is immensely helpful. I think it has also helped me, linking to what you had said before, for me, maybe not for others, but for me to have come to medicine as a second career mm-hmm. was very, very helpful because I, I came see, feeling like an outsider. 
but I wasn't pre-med in college. I had to go back to school to take those classes. And I felt like a little off kilter and as an outsider. And I thought, oh, I, I won't feel that way after a little while. And I think it's been very good for me that I still feel that way. I feel in some sense inside because you know, I'm a practicing physician, but I also feel outside. And I think that has been very helpful because if you stand outside of something, you, you, can, you can have a better view often, not always, but a better view of what's going on inside of it. And this idea that what's going on here is a lot of polishing the hood. And if you have 20 people that take their car and say, I'm not happy with my car and you polish the hood on all 20, probably one person, that, that's going to be the answer. They needed the hood polished. The other 19 still have the problem, right? And just seeing that over and over and also seeing, and I come from a family where a lot of, as people got older, they were immigrants. You know, they, they, they spoke broken English. They spoke unclear English. They weren't educated and, and they were treated very poorly as they started getting older and getting sick. Not always, but a lot of times I, I saw they were intelligent people. They were just dis, coming from a disempowered place, socioeconomically, linguistically, and just how confusing and infuriating it would be to see like, people in white coats when somebody was sick coming out and saying things that no one understood. Mm. And it's like, there's a common sense of let's engage with people. Let, let's build some realness between us, some back and forth between us. And we may not be able to solve everything, but I'll be damned if we can't get pretty far in our efforts to understand. Yeah. I love that approach. And I also think it's so important, which you started the the conversation by uh, commenting on as well, of defining terms for clarity. And I think there's something uh, probably related to the the math side of your brain that might um, go in that direction. I, I tend to be the the same way. And I wonder for you know people that are listening to this or getting familiar with your work, a decent question might be how do we know when something is not trauma because i'm sure you know it's it's more in the zeitgeist it seems like these days to link uh enduring issues in one's life to a traumatic event in the past and it, it i have no doubt that uh that is the case probably in far more instances than we tend to we tend to appreciate but to invert that how do you, as a clinician, as a doctor, um, flip that on its head and have a, a sense of something that is an issue not necessarily being the result of trauma? I'm sure this is something you've given a decent amount of thought to. Yes, yes. It's really all in the history taking. It's all in understanding, did that person change? Because quote unquote, traumatic things, things that may not make changes in the brain can be rationalizations, right? Which is not helpful to a person, right? So, so, so if we see that that wasn't real change, but say a person was going down a disempowered course and they're, they're using denial and rationalization, like why that's okay and why they're not good enough to do better. And, and then this something happens, say, and, and, it, and it just plays into that narrative of self well, maybe there's a maybe there are other maybe there are other traumas predating that put the person in that place, but that particular thing doesn't then seem to have changed them. 
Hmm. Whereas if people are very clearly different and examples I give, like again, this is black and white in many ways. I give an example, often it's a real story of a woman who is coming from a disadvantaged place and had won some award earlier in life and was so proud of that because it showed, hey, you're smart and people recognize that and you can go do something. You can go do what you choose. And she was so proud hmm. of that. But after trauma, she saw it in a different way and did not know that she ever saw it different. That was a mockery afterwards. You're never going to get anywhere. So that award is some joke, the best thing that will ever happen to you. And, and she's in a sense rubbing it in her own face that, that, that she couldn't do better than that. Now, now she knew better before the trauma. And after the trauma, she didn't know that she ever knew better. Mm. So that's the kind of thing that you're looking for right, in, in the history taking and also just changes. So this, this idea, like there's hard science behind this, that when people change after trauma, so one example is if you see a new face coming at you, you know, people who aren't laboring under brain changes of trauma, if the face is neutral, can kind of see it with curiosity. Are you going to smile at me or you know, maybe we'll have some good interaction? Or if the person's interested in romance, like, are you really smiling at me? Like they're curious, right? They're interested, right? But after trauma, there's a difference. Like what lights up in the brain is vigilance. Are you gonna you're gonna hurt me? Are you do you have it out for me? Like people just see life or come at life more on the back foot. Hmm. And it's like that's real change in a person. It's change that at times can be seen on functional magnetic resonance imaging. Like scientific things show us this, which is why I'm always trying to emphasize that it's not a soft concept, right? It's a hard concept. It doesn't mean 100% of the time we can know, but the vast majority of the time we can track back to like, okay, gosh, if this if there's real change after this, let's understand that because it doesn't have to be this way. That's why we talk about life narratives. What was your life narrative before? Why is it not your life narrative now? Like, how do we get back to that life narrative? Then we start building empowerment. I mean, I, I you know, I work at a place where there are about 30 of us here in varying capacity and there's you know, Pacific Premier Group, a bunch of us working together and we're in the empowerment business. Like, what do we do? We're in the empowerment business. Sometimes that's through intensive work. Sometimes it's through consulting work. Sometimes through hourly work. But whatever it is, it's the idea that people are stronger, healthier, empowered when mm -hmm. they leave. And trauma isn't all that we do, but it's the, it ends up being at the root of most of what we do because I think it's at the root of most of what is ailing people. Mm. To Us. me, what is, yeah, yeah. And what's so fascinating about this in part is that people may not even be aware of it that, right. that, that they may have fast. changed. And, yes. and, and for people that, you know, I think you and I probably swim in these waters more than the average person. You definitely do in terms of thinking about human problems uh, being rooted in this. But for people that, that don't, that are maybe hearing about this for the first time, what are the most common um stories or the most common events in people's lives that tend to cause a truly uh, traumatic event in somebody's obviously you were talking about acute instances like what you experienced in your 20s with your with your brother but what typically do you come across if there are any you know prevailing um events that are probably worth mentioning just to have people maybe put on their own personal radars right right and sometimes when we're talking with someone about how they're doing, whatever it may be, someone new, I'm just trying to come to understand them. It is remarkable how we as humans 
can just gloss over very, very big things. Hmm. Right? A woman I know very, very well and and wrote a story about her for the book, and, and she's given me permission to talk about her in ways someone might identify. Um, we, we've talked about this um, because her story, it's so compelling that when she first came to me, she had had this, this terrible trauma, but she was treating it as if this was not, it was not meaningful because it was a long time ago. So she wasn't honoring, like she was different after that. But because of the passage of time, and I think the fact that others around her, the world around her, hadn't paid enough attention to it, and then she hadn't paid enough attention, then she says it in an offhand way, like, whoa, let's talk about that. And then, and just that was the place where her life changed. Mm -hmm. But she had to realize that thing that I just say as part of my history is not a small thing. And it struck me from the outside of, whoa, that's not because I'm a psychiatrist. Like it would strike anybody who's hearing that, like you just said that in the same breath as smaller things, but let's stop on that, right? So, so one aspect of it is there can be big traumas that we gloss over in part because of guilt, shame, confusion, fear, whatever else may be in us. So that's one aspect. The other is is to look for the things that are more subtle. So the, the multiple hit hypothesis, and we know this is true, we see it play out where sometimes a relatively small trauma compared to things that have come before it, it cha- is what changes that person. Hmm. And then it's very hard. Well, how could that be anything? Look at these other things, right? But what happened is like, it's one hit, it's another hit. Again, what doesn't kill us very often weakens us. And another hit, and another hit, and now there are genetic expression changes, and there, there are endocrinological, there's changes and changes that ultimately push that person. It's like another drop goes in, the, the, then the fulcrum shifts. So this curiosity, which is why I'll say if a person cannot access therapy, not everyone has the ability to access therapy or even a trusted other, right? But you can always, you can write about your life, right? And what has gone on in you and how you felt about yourself, how other people saw you, right? And you can ask people if you can, you can write a narrative uh, or think a narrative or talk a narrative that that can let you see the change in you. As I say, no one comes out of the womb thinking that they're not good enough to not be in an abusive situation. They're not good enough to have a better job. They're not good enough to, to not be bullied. But if we're thinking these things about ourselves, where did that come from? Hmm. Let's understand that. Because if we understand that, we can change it. We can write what has been put into a place that is not a fair, not a just, not an okay place for things to be. Yeah. I One of the aspects of the, I was just watching this last night, your interview with Rich Roll, which I thought was a, a masterpiece. And uh, it, there was so much, it, in part because he seemed to be one of the perfect interviewers to speak with you, given his own personal background with sobriety and going to AA. Mm-hmm. I I wanted, and I thought the the part of the conversation where you were talking about shame was so crucial because, and I, I don't know if you agree with this assessment, but that one of the reasons why these traumatic events stay with people is because they're ashamed to to speak about them openly yes. and that there is this kind of i don't know if i'd call it a depression but a, a kind of sucking in of of air of of burying something in in your um in yourself and not allowing you to go through something uh, properly and 
I just wanted to set the table for you with that and talk about the role of of shame in maybe even I don't know if you would agree with this as well, but of holding trauma in place for people and anything else that you might want to add to that idea. Sure, sure. The first thing I would say, and I say this often, is don't make yourself special in a negative way. Mm. I hear over and over and over in the over quarter century or so I've been in medicine right, that it would be okay. I would be compassionate, of course, for anyone else, but not me. Right? And I was in that place too. I would never say to someone else, like, you should be ashamed because you lost a family member to suicide. I mean, can't imagine saying, right? Mm. But I could say to me, Right? Why? Because I felt ashamed. So I, I am ashamed. So, or was at the time, right? If I am ashamed or shame inside of me, then that's different than if I'm not feeling ashamed and you're bringing me something that you feel ashamed about. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like don't, you don't have to feel shamed about that, right? Hmm. So we we make ourselves special in a negative way. And how many times I've seen a person who is just shutting themselves down terribly and terrible negative self-talk guilt shame say because someone else assaulted them hmm. they're just doing what they're doing and someone else does something terrible to them and they would never 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 tell someone else oh you shouldn't have been out at that time of night you should have been dressed that way you should have been this or that. would never say that but they will say that to themselves all day long because we're already feeling shame we become more isolated and then that's why we we will hold this inside of us and if we hold it inside of us it is toxic hmm. the analogy here which i think is a is a good one it maps very well that's why I use it a lot, is to an abscess. Right? An abscess is a walled-off infection inside of the body. Mm. Now, it is good if there is infection inside the body to wall it off. If it's not walled off, it could threaten the person's life. Mm. But walled-off infection spins off symptoms. That person has an intermittent low-grade fever. They're jittery. They're distressed. Their sleep isn't so good. They're not functioning so well. They feel sick at times. And abscess will spin off those symptoms. And if you go looking for it, it's often hard to find. You need to follow the history, right? Then you see there's something going on in this person that needs attention. And, and the abscesses often say surgically addressed. And now the person has to go through a surgery and a surgery is a difficult thing, right? You have to go through something that involves some stepping away from your life and maybe some pain, like a surgery is not a fun thing, right? But if you go through that thing on the other side of it, that abscess isn't in you anymore. Mm. Right? And the same thing is true. It maps to the buried trauma is so, so to speak, an abscess. It's not really, it's in here, Right? It's inside of us that we have to deal with that. It spins off symptoms of not being confident, of being afraid, of avoiding people when I might not have before, of not taking a chance on myself when I might have before. Like It's spinning off all of those symptoms. And people will say, oh, I don't want it. Some people know it's inside, but oh, if I think about it, people will say, I'll, I'll start crying and I'll never stop. I'll be in a fetal position. I'll never get out of it. No one starts crying and doesn't stop. No one gets into a fetal position and like 10 hours later, you got to carry them somewhere and they never come out of it. That's not how it works. That's what keeps us terrorized, right? The shame terrorizes us into keeping the secret that spins off the symptoms that hurt us and create a, 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 um, a 
more better ground for the shame and the terrorizing to happen. Like that's not what we want, but we have to look at what's inside of us and say, there's a hurdle I have to get over, but I have to think about this. I have to talk to someone about this. I have to do that thing. That's the equivalent of the surgery. Like, and it's not easy to do, but if I do that thing on the other side of it, I can be different and better. And that's part of the the news that I try and bring in doing podcasts and writing the book that mm. there are a lot of people laboring under this who absolutely can be better, but they have to have an understanding that society doesn't give us. Like it's not people's fault that this is inside of them. Our society doesn't tell us about this. We don't get educated about this. Yeah. We can go seek medical care. In a lot of ways, we can go seek medical care and not learn anything about this, but walk away with the medicine that's supposed to soothe some symptoms that are not going to be soothed because they're coming from something inside of us that's going to continue to spin off symptoms until we address it. But it doesn't have to be that way. So you know, knowledge is power, right? So knowing this can help a person, I, I think and hope it has helped people to say, hey, I got to look at this thing inside of me because this is not how, it doesn't have to be like this. To me, this seems like one of the great areas of hope of modernity. You know, there's a lot of downsides to modern technology, but this is not one of them mm -hmm. um, in my right. mind of, of spreading this. And there, there's a line that um, that Rich gave during your conversation, and this is related to AA, that shame cannot stand the light. And as you were just speaking right now, I was th I was thinking about, you know, so much of overcoming a lot of this seems to be rooted in a degree of courage, um, of being... Uh, honest with yourself and being vulnerable in addressing things that you may not feel comfortable speaking about. And I was thinking about this a few minutes ago about how this is probably, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but that this might be a more difficult um, task for men, um, especially mm -hmm. in our culture. You were just talking about how our culture doesn't educate people about this and that if you're handed a brochure and given a pill, that probably even makes you feel even more isolated and ashamed. Uh, because you've gone to the person that you think is there to help you, and there's been nothing that's really even gotten close to root cause of what you might be going through. Um, yes. it, does anything about that resonate about, uh, obviously, this is extremely important knowledge for everyone, but that this is really uh, potentially even more of a danger or uh, an issue for men specifically? Yeah. So we know this, and it is the truth of it. The, the, the world is not a binary place, right? In terms of gender, sexuality, almost anything, right? Mm -hmm. But here, what you're what you're pointing out is is that if we if we say okay, there, there there's a locus of people right in one place who access care less, like men. Mm -hmm. And and that creates other problems. So people aren't accessing care; it's still inside of them. And you see a lot of acting out, right? You see more violence, you see more the, the kind of things of driving that creates an accident, get somebody really hurt, right? Because there's frustration and tension inside of a person, they don't know where to go. Now that doesn't just happen in men, but it's but it's socially mm. um, um, pushed forward more in men who are less likely to access care, right? Then women are more likely to access care. Now that's good. So they may be less likely to act out of that it happens in women too, of course, but then they may be, they are more likely to walk away unhelped because they're seeking care more. So mm -hmm. they're more likely to like, yeah, I, I kind of know I need to talk about this. And they come away with a symptom inventory, uh, a medicine and a 15 minute follow-up appointment in six weeks. That's mm -hmm. not going to work. 
right? So the way the system is now kind of doesn't work for anyone. It doesn't work for any demographic or for the demographic of all of us taken together. But we do want to be aware of what particular liabilities are. And in men, it's less access to care, more acting out. It's women's it's more access to care. And, and then the access to care providing disappointment. And I think you're, you're right. Sometimes it takes another time, another time. Right. I mean, I said to people things that a lot of times surprise people that, you know, you went to a therapist and that didn't work out. Like maybe that person was good at their job, but it wasn't a match. Like a lot of times, maybe that person wasn't so good at their job. Hmm. Like that's true of humans but in, in whatever endeavor may be. So if that didn't work the first time, like think about why. Maybe it didn't work because you were so shut down and then you thought the other person couldn't help you or maybe the other person wasn't paying attention. Whatever it is, go at that again. Try again. Like This is your life. Hmm. right? So try again and build that courage. I mean, I still remember going to therapy after the loss of my brother and feeling very you know, like sneaky about it to go in as if I'm doing something shameful because of something shameful, right? Mm. And then going in there and I just, I remember that the, the person like didn't shame me. Like it meant so much that she wasn't handling me with kid gloves either, that, that, that she was just like, yeah, <laughs> it makes sense that like you're not doing so great and you're depressed and you're acting out and you're not like, yeah. And like, it's so validating. But oftentimes that's what people need. Now, when people will say the thing that's been on their mind, I, I was abused. I was, they'll say, I was molested. They'll say it. And there's a way that like they've said the shameful thing for someone to recoil. Hmm. So, you, you know, you build trust as best you can and, and you let people hold up. Like, is that shameful? And a lot of times, like for me, having it validated, like, oh, right, that does make sense. And then I could map. It's not like I didn't understand that because I could understand it for other people. And I'd had people around me who'd lost family members to suicide. And I certainly understood. I felt a sense of compassion and like what could go on and change inside of them. So I could map to something I understood, but it's like the light bulb of like, hey, that's me too. Mm. That's often when, when people are really turning the corner, when they can stand outside of themselves and say, you know, that child that was really hurt was and is me. That person who was assaulted, I can stand out front of side. That's me. And they can stand outside enough to see like that happened to me and then feel the compassion. Some people use the empty chair, say to another person. Sometimes I would say, okay, we have another person coming in. The patient is, I'm joking. I'm, I'm, it's, it's not true, but it's in the service of helping them that, okay, someone's coming in next who has the same exact issue that, that you do. Can, can you please just stay around and tell them how bad they should feel about it? Because they were attacked or they were denigrated because of their gender, their sexuality. Or this, like, please stay and like tell that person how that's so horribly them. But you recoil, right? But they get it. Like, but but you're saying that to you. Hmm. And that's not, it's not okay to say outward to someone. You can't even say the words that you would say to someone. It feels so, my God, I would never say that to someone. But you're saying it to yourself. And that's why part of understanding is what is your narrative inside? It's not mm. just what you write down. What is your self-talk? And a lot of people have very, very negative self-talk. And if you stop and you ask about that, yeah, I'm always saying like, oh, you can't do that. Or what's wrong with you? Or there's a lot of this going on inside of people. Let's get curious about that. And let's not treat ourselves worse than mm. we would treat anyone else on the planet. Like oftentimes that's, that's, that's a theme. 
Man, it seems like so many people probably are not seeking help because of, you know, we're both Americans, but because of our cultural conditioning that they've basically been persuaded that this, that they're not worthy of healing something in themselves that's, that's bothering them. And I wonder if, if you would agree that there is just an undercurrent, a message that people need to unlearn that they probably imbibed through the culture just in growing up in the United States that um, would probably go a long way in encouraging people to seek help and very likely improve their negative self-talk internally or the suffering that they're dealing with. If you agree with that, what 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 is it that we need to unlearn, generally speaking, about um, you know trauma and anything else that we've already discussed today? Yeah, the problems are definitely present in this country. I think they're present a lot of other places, maybe most, well, most other places, maybe all. I, I don't know. I haven't mm-hmm. been everywhere. But this yep. is a very, very common, it's a very common theme of like, come on, you're supposed to move ahead, right? It's in a very American theme. Come on, move ahead, move ahead, be resilient. Come on, that's what we want, right? In England, I've lived in England too. So I have a stiff upper lip, right? There's a lot of this that has its different cultural translation. But the idea that like, if you have been hurt, you get to feel hurt, mm. right? You know, if someone, you have an injury and now your leg is badly broken, like no one says, you don't get to be like, ow, like you get to go, ow. And something happens then, like maybe you need a surgery, you need something to repair the leg. Like we understand that, right? That's true for the things that are what? Most important in our, in our brains. Like we know if you are laboring under the brain changes of trauma, you are older than your age. What I mean by that is you may be like, oh, that person is 40 years old or 50 years old or 70 years old by the calendar, but really they're older than that. Hmm. They're not 40, they're 45, they're not 50, they're 56, right? Because that's what happens. So think about this. It, we age greater than our calendar years from trauma. Like this is real. Hmm. And if we don't acknowledge that it's real, then we're we're laboring under something that's so false that it brings terrible things, which is why I will say often our medical system has evolved in a way that is all about throughput, right? Because so much of it, if not all of it, the vast majority of it is about money. And so that's another route in to say, you know, we, we so look at a short-term perspective, right? Like what, what, what do things look like now at the end of this week, at the end of this quarter, like as opposed to being stewards, right? So uh, of, of say a, a business or financial resources across time. But even if we just, it's what I'll say, even if we just, let's, let's take out of the picture people and their suffering, mm-hmm. which is not what we want to do. But let's say if we do that, there is so much cost to this. There's billions of dollars of cost in lost productivity, emergency room visits, medical care, way more than half of of people's complaints to physical medicine doctors. That's everyone practicing medicine who's not a psychiatrist, right, are are coming from mental health sources. Like there's data that shows us that we are costing ourselves billions of dollars because we're looking so short term. So if you come in, instead of saying, let's let's try and under let's try and understand what your symptoms are in 45 minutes so we can write a couple of medicines without making eye contact is that more efficient i mean it is in the moment you only paid for 45 minutes some system of that person's time and the medicines can be not that expensive right so is that saving money it is if you just look at it like this 
Hmm. It is not if you look at what is the toll. We see in the, the studies are out there. What is the toll of depression on, on the economy? It's huge. And not hmm. all depression comes from trauma, but a lot of it does. So it's it's this idea that let's go for what the systems that have by and large control are interested in. It is it is not better just from a dollars and cents perspective. In fact, it's just tragically wasteful. Yeah, it's tragically wasteful of resources. Now let's go back to what we factored out for sake of the argument, which is human suffering. It's astronomical, and so much of it is preventable. So much of it, hmm. preventable. Well, it's treatable. It's changeable. I mean, Paul, your energy for this, your vitality for this, is palpable just in this one conversation. I mean, I have a lot of admiration for how much of your life you've dedicated to being trying to trying to help with this. And I think a lot of people who have probably been patients would hear what you just said and completely agree with it. And you used the word earlier, rapport. That mm-hmm. rapport is so important in navigating these waters to try to understand what might be at the root cause of somebody's suffering. How long does it typically take you when you have a new patient to understand their biography and the root of their own trauma? And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this are wondering, how have you made this work just you know, economically speaking, which um, I think we've all had that experience of going into a doctor's office and feeling like cattle. Like there's, It's obvious that there's a clock that's ticking and it's time for me to go here pretty quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, building rapport is as different as there are people one yeah. is trying to build rapport with. I mean, usually say on average, just maybe a, a curve to it, maybe the more middle of that curve is, is you know, maybe be some weeks or some months to, to really build a sense of trust if you're more open and real with people i think that happens more quickly but yeah. that could happen you know in a few in a shorter period of time it might take a much much longer period of time and our systems aren't patient it may be that you're going to build rapport with that person for 6 months if you're going to have any chance of helping them but our systems gave him 10 sessions right and like they failed their treatment after 10 sessions and like there's a real talk about tragic now that person is labeled they failed this they failed that no the system failed them so mm-hmm. so rapport it's just about being attuned to people and and talking with them like how they feel like we can ask people this like you know as your comfort level feel like and we can talk to people more and get more feedback and just kind of be there with them and then we're going to build rapport as fast as we can even if that might still take a while you know and then it's, it's just very hard to work within systems like i i a lot uh, most of what I do is outside of any of these systems hmm. because there's such a frustration inside of me and being beholden to a system that says, go do something helpful. Like telling somebody, go, go walk over there and that'll really be helpful to someone, but we're going to tie your ankles and your arms, you know, together. So you can't really do it. Right. Hmm. Even though otherwise you could. And you know, but there are ways around it. I remember early in my career, you know, being in a system that was, 15 minute appointments. And, and then I had people like, I need to learn about them. So I realized, oh, you can have a lot of 15. They're not looking one to another. So they're going to come back for 15 minute appointments four days in a row, because then I'm going to get my hour with them. And I can remember with, this is really a true story that um, there was a woman who I, I felt like I 
really was able to help this way. And you could tell because she wasn't going into the hospital anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like, I feel I help her. Her average of X number of hospitalizations over a six month period is now gone like this. Mm -hmm. and, and part of it was, there's no way I was going to help that woman in 15 minutes every couple months is waste, right? So she she was coming in more frequently. And then at some point, it's really a true story. There was, I got a letter from the insurance company and it's like about, it's about her. And I'm feeling like I was naive. I was young at the time. Like, I'm going to say, thank you. Kept her out of the hospital and saved us a zillion dollars, right? And, but it was a, it was like a veiled threat of, you, are you abusing the system because you're seeing her too often? That's awful. Yeah. That is awful. And who is it awful for? That person. And how many people like that? And how short-sighted those appointments cost that insurance company very, very little, right? And saved them very, very much. But mm. they couldn't see that. All they could see was that one little bucket was using more of the 15-minute time and for whatever $40 that was outgoing. And like that to me is a litmus test of this system is broken. It's yeah. absolutely broken. And it will not. Sometimes there are good people. I'm not saying everyone in it. I mean, there are good people in it working very, very hard. And I feel such compassion for people working within systems. But the systems are broken enough that you can't rely on them. You have to be your own advocate because the systems don't take care of us like they should. And to me, that's, I mean, that's as good an example, as good an example as there's going to be. Yeah. And I think probably speaks to the power of incentives within a given system. And sometimes those incentives are terrible and lead to severely suboptimal results. And if I understood you correctly there, am I right that you've primarily just opted out of the traditional system in general in order to yes. you know, have the kind of practice that you want? Yes. I'm built in a way that I want things to happen. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not a natural baby. And that just stop thinking, okay, it takes time. Like I can be that way. I can, I believe, I think that I can allow time if time is what is indicated and needed. I can take mm -hmm. six months to build rapport if that's what it takes. But to see that like this should be different, but there's no ability to really change it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sit so well with mm -hmm. me. It's just like the immense frustration in me. I just, you know, guided myself. Like, if I'm going to do what I do, I have to be able to do it in a way where it can really help people. And then part of what we, we do outside of insurance then can subsidize you know, taking care of someone without cost to them. Like there, there are ways of doing that. I, I don't want to leave money in insurance systems, but if there's going to be money, have it paid to practitioners who can then utilize that to, to then take care of people who don't have the ability to pay. I think that's a, it's a better way of doing it. Now, is that good? No, it would be good if the systems were such that, People could work within the systems, feel good, not feel that they're so devalued by the systems. And, and for, for many, many healthcare practitioners working within systems, they feel very much like the light bulb that's interchangeable. Mm -hmm. So like these systems, many of them are miserable to work in. And we know that from rates of depression and rates of suicide in healthcare workers, how much, and, and this way I look with admiration, how, how much... Did people suffer who worked in hospitals during the pandemic, but they did it anyway? Mm -hmm. And and what happened? Having worked in hospitals, I know when, what that means. I don't know what it means to work there during the pandemic, but I know it was much harder than what I did, which was very hard. But what happened after the pandemic? Not much difference. No one said, like, are we going to honor these people? Like, what are we going to do to help them go forward? It's like they go back to 
what they were doing before. And, you know, we have this rush forward, rush forward, rush forward. And I've said this many times, and I think this is true. We do this as a society. This is more an American thing. It happens in other places too, that we rush forward so quickly that we just trample people Hmm. along the way. And we don't really see it because when someone who has suffered from trauma, then their horizons change. The young woman I told you about, that who who changed in her thought about the award is she's dead and, and there's no like oh my god she's dead like that's it like a lot of these things happen and we don't as a society say oh my god that was a young person that didn't have to happen hmm. we just go along and maybe i think we as a society trample people like that and and what we don't realize is even if we can't say hey this is not right you know what maybe we can anchor to is any one of us can be that person who is on the ground and potentially trampled. Like I was there and I I've been there since I've been a physician too. Like it's just because you're not insulated from any of this. Like we're all people and we could all be that person. Are we going to just move forward and be and trample or not? Mm-hmm. And I think we, for us to stop and say, Whoa, like this healthcare system is broken. How we're handling so much of this. This is not okay. We need to change this because this is about us, mm-hmm. all of us. Yeah. Beautifully said. And, you know, I know we've talked a lot about, you know, trauma and your work in trauma today. And I'd love to, if we can maybe transition to some tactics that you often will offer to people to try to help relieve suffering. I mean, it's obvious just in speaking to you, how much you must care about your patients. And, you know, one comment I heard you say, um, in an interview that I I uh, was listening to, is that one of your most common suggestions is that people stop watching the news, um, mm-hmm. and you know, and I, I'm sure there's it's case dependent and person dependent in terms of what you right. suggest. But it, what are some of the more common, um, you know, habits or uh, lifestyle changes that um, you you find? may actually help people work through some of their trauma and and mitigate a lot of the suffering that they're experiencing. This may sound simplistic, but but I I think it's, it's not, it's just starting from a basis of like, are you taking care of yourself reasonably or not? Because there are two things that can come of that. One is if, if the answer to that is no, there are things to change. There are things to change. One of those things might be like, I just, I need to get more rest. Right? That, that might be a thing. I need to get more exercise. I need to eat to eat better. I can't be doing things the way I'm doing them. I'm just running myself down. Like maybe those are answers, right? So mm-hmm. th- it tells about things we can do better. And then it also begs the question of why? Why are you not taking care of yourself? So starting with some of the real basics of self-care in terms of inquiry regarding a, a desire to change and also a desire to understand. Like, And there's a lot to do about that and even things that can be as simple as like the news thing do you think the 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 system in psychiatry which generally is like a book the dsm like this thick you know which in my view is designed to make sure that everybody's got five or six diagnoses so <laughs> that the system can get people into care and then the, the system is needed because everybody's a diagnosis even though people don't get helped in their 15 minute appointments like i i am against that we need to understand categories of illness, what changes biologically in depression or in addiction. We need to understand these things. But if we if we decide that that's the metric by, by which we are determining things, and we are really, really leading ourselves, we're really leading ourselves astray. 
Right. So, so one aspect of that is the idea that vicarious trauma for ages, I, th- I think this is still the case, but I'm not paying attention. There are other things to pay attention to that are more important of, mm-hmm. of like vicarious trauma being acknowledged as making real like PTSD, which is a post-trauma syndrome, if it occurs in the context of one's work. Okay, that makes no sense. Mm. As you're saying, the brain change in, in listen, we both have the same brain change through vicarious trauma, but yours has come through your work, say, in the medical field or in the military, right? And mine has not. Mine has come through having a very, very sick neighbor or someone I know who lost a child so that it's come through that or it's come through the news of being so afraid and so worried or so connected to other people's suffering that the people can't stop looking at everything that's happening in the wars going on around us. That can change people just the same. If if you have the brain change and I have the brain change, the system's going to validate you, but not me because it came in terms of work. Like that's not medical, right? That's just a, that's just a categorization mechanism. And we need to look beyond that and see what is the real truth of it. So if vicarious trauma can change our brain, then vicarious trauma can change our brain. And if a person is becoming more anxious, they're not sleeping as well, their habits are changing, right? Because they cannot stop looking at what is going on, for example, in the Ukraine. They're so distraught by it that they cannot look away from it, then we we need to honor that. And so, okay, you need to stop that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you're not compassionate okay? if you're not or, or being vigilant about your own safety of people you love. It, you don't need to do that in order to be safe. It's hurting you. So, so we need to just look with this idea of common sense plus inquiry mm-hmm. tells us a lot. And for some people in a way that's humor, but well meant is I'm going to write you a prescription and it's like really, really important. And I'm, I'm building up to something with pseudo human. It's no more news, right? Or yeah. you check the news to learn, check, look, scan down the news. Now you're now going to something different. So a lot of times common sense plus inquiry tells us, Hey, the person needs to eat better, sleep more, you know, be, sometimes you learn then of things that are entirely unacceptable. Like many People who are in abusive settings in some part of their life have just accepted, well, that's part of what it is. Like, whoa, we did stop it. That's not okay for, for anyone on mm. earth. And oh, right, okay, that's why. Like, there's some things that are very basic that we can gloss over in our in ourselves. So, so again, I'll start with common sense and rational inquiry is going to get us far. You add some relationship building on top of it. And we're off to the races of understanding ourselves, helping understand others, and both helping and being helped. And that can happen in a treatment room between a a therapist and a patient, but it can also happen between friends to some extent, right? That means no one's saying that's not a substitute for professional help if someone needs it. If someone is suicidal or having significant symptoms, but there are many people who can't get to that and we can do some of that for each other. Just like, just talking about what's going on in you. Like you seem different or I'm your friend and you're telling me that, man, like you're really feeling down and what's going on. Or, you know, usually if there's something fun to do, like you're right there with it. But man, the last couple of months, the last several months since that thing happened, or maybe I don't know what happened. Maybe you don't know what happened, but I noticed that you've been different. We can have these conversations. You know, we just have to be thoughtful about how we have them, but we can seek them out in others and we can seek to have them with others that we care about. Yeah. I I know this was something that I wanted to bring up with you, which is just where you think we are in 
the state of mental health care. You know, I mean, we've talked a couple of times during this conversation already about how, um, you know, intense the U.S. is and how probably misguided it has been about uh, human wellness for its citizens and having a rational and empathic approach to mental health care in, in the country. And, you know, many of, it seems to me that many of these, I had Peter Levine on the show. He was the last guest and you know, he came on the scene, I think in the nineties. And one of the things that I think he was most known for is introducing the idea that trauma is physical. It's something in the body and that that's something that is seen throughout nature. I mean, that wasn't that long ago that um, that very concept seemed to gain widespread recognition in, in America. And I don't know if you view where we are today as like being in the dark ages, we're just, or the beginning of the enlightenment that we're just beginning to have a candle in the dark with these subjects. But I did want to ask you um, about where in history you think we are in terms of our understanding, because so many of the modern ailments I've just seen in my life with friends and with people in the country seem to be rooted in mysterious disorders that are not very well understood in the brain. Um, I put that to you just to give your assessment of where you think we are and just understanding these, these areas of, of knowledge in general. Yeah. Well, the first thing to say, the mental health care in America on balance is dismal. Mm-hmm. You asked me about the assessment of the state of mental health care. It doesn't mean there's not help to be had, but it means help is hard to find. And this idea that it's throughput, it's it's just how can we get just people through the system the other side? It's not like, what are we actually helping them? We have all these systems then built up where the system is serving itself. And how many people now who are supposed to be helping others are just click, click, click on that computer screen? They don't have time to help the person. The person doesn't feel helped because the person who's trying to help them is just clicking through a bunch of minutes. And that person who's doing it feels miserable. That's going on all the time in thousands upon thousands upon thousands of places right now in the Mm -hmm. United States, other places too, but in America. So the system is dismal. And I think we're, we're at a stage where we know so many things that we're just not doing anything about. It's like, if we're all huddling, we don't have, we don't have electricity. So we don't have heat and we don't have the things that we need. We don't have lights, but like electricity exists. We know all about it. We just don't have it. And and you can say, okay, it's, you know, things that people understood in the 70s or 80s or 90s. And so okay, it's not that long, but it is also a long time hmm. if you look at how quick things, quickly things move in the modern world and that we're not doing anything with that information really, hmm. right? On balance, all those these things that are known are not impactful. It is remarkable to me. And it shocked me coming to medicine as an outsider and realizing the difference between how much is known and understood and how much actually gets put to like rubber hitting the road. Mm. Let's use that and help people. And that is very, very shocking to me. These systems have their inertia and their momentum. And, and I would say, if you have to live in the dark, make the best of it. If you don't have to live in the dark, know that and get the electricity so you don't have to live in the dark. That's what we as a society need to stop and look and say, we're racing ahead so far in all these systems that we are not helping ourselves and each other. And we suffer losses 
because of it, of people who die by suicide or by overdose or from, from medical consequences, right? Autoimmune diseases, the, the cardiovascular heart disease that are promoted by mental health problems. Like this is hurting us as a group. So let's stop running forward so quickly that we leave ourselves behind, our, you know, people who are part of us, or we trample them along the way and say, let's stop and take stock. Like, what do we know? How can we be doing this in a way that would be different? And I think that can happen. I, I don't think it's going to happen from the bottom up. I think we have to realize like, this is broken. This must change. And then I think we can change things in big ways. It's just like people can do that. Societies can do that. But we have to recognize like enough. This isn't working and we're not going to fine tune it here or there. We have to stop and look at this and say, what are we doing? Mm. And how can we do it differently? Yeah. Brilliantly put. And, you know, I know to me, again, this comes back to your comment about how you were a math miner about getting to root cause, getting to the real reason for you know, people's ailments. And I, I know you've talked about this with other podcasters that um, one of Gabor Mate's most famous lines is ask not why the addiction, but why the pain. And yeah. I think that's such a pithy, but important way to frame um, one of many areas in which trauma is inflicting suffering in, in our civilization. But, um, you know, I, I know we're getting yes. towards the end of the conversation yes. and I could talk to you all day long, but I want to I want to give um, a little bit of time for what you're hopeful about and the future. And I know, you know, just one thing that I, I had an interview years ago with on this show with a man who did um, MDMA work for Maps in the early mm -hmm. uh, trials, mm -hmm. and um, you know that I know specifically seems to show a lot of uh, efficacy with with trauma with PTSD. And there's a reasonable chance that that may be greenlit for medical use by the FDA this year. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just put that to, to you in general of what you're hopeful about. You know, it, it's clear to me again, just in talking to you that your heart is in the right place and that you're, you, I think mostly um, you're interested in helping people, which I know most doctors are, but what, what to you are the big um, areas of real hope specifically that you you are looking forward to in the in the future to um, make people more well i think there are two aspects of that the first is we are learning and understanding uh regarding incredibly powerful potential tools so like i said mdma for trauma potentially a tremendously powerful tool i think it is in the right hands in the studies and have shown that same thing with psychedelics same things with what we learned through neuroimaging and epigenetics like we are learning a lot that that it could be is very important very important and potentially changing the ability of the field to help people in really really robust ways so i of course i find that very encouraging but in the context of what we just talked about none of that matters if no one is accessing it yeah. Right? That what what I find more hope and promise is that people are are really interested in mental health. Like it's getting attention. People are talking about it, acknowledging it. There, there's there's so much of this less reflexive shame about even the idea of mental health. And I'm not so ashamed if I've gotten got something going on, but between here and the ground. But if it's here, I'm supposed to feel there's there's less of that and there's more of an interest and more of an an openness. And it's that 
that makes change. Because again, it doesn't matter what tools you have if you can't access the toolbox. Right? It doesn't matter what tools a system has if you don't know the tools are there and the system isn't going to open the toolbox for you. But if, if we're like, wait a second, there's something to understand better here and we care about this and we want this to be different. Now we're harnessing the energy that can create change where hopefully two people aren't having this discussion 20 years down the road, or maybe you and I aren't having it. Well, we talked about a lot and learned there's a lot out there, but things aren't any different, really. I mean, we need to not have that conversation. You know, I don't think a few years down the road, let alone far down the road, that maybe now there's the will, there's the wherewithal of saying, hey, enough is enough, because you know who's getting hurt and dying? Us. Mm. Very, very few people don't know anyone or aren't, don't know closely care about someone who knows someone who say died by suicide or, or died through substance use one way or another. Like it's, it's, it's common enough, which is tragic, but it also can make that light bulb go off. Like this isn't about like other people. This is about us. And again, if you think this system isn't trampling people and that you or someone you love couldn't be trampled, you know, you have your, you have your eyes closed. So it's it's the realization of that truth that I think starts to give me the incentive, the will to look at this and say, enough is enough. We need to change. Fair enough. I think that's a great place to end. Uh, you know, Paul, I, I just want to say again how much I admire your work and for your openness and for Thanks your so willingness much. to share your stories. Absolutely. And um, I've benefited from it personally. And I know I speak for a lot of people in um, commending you for uh, y- your openness to the public and the way that you um, you. have, have been over the past many years. So, um, really appreciate you giving me the time. And to me, that's a great source of hope for the future. It's a, it's a, a turbulent time, obviously, as the world always is, but the fact that there are these tools and that the, you know, the increasing knowledge that the mind is malleable and that there is hope for people that are, yes. are really suffering is, um, is just an amazing. And I think very optimistic fact about the world we live in. So, um, thank you again so much for doing this. I I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. I so appreciate you having me on and leading the discussion that gets this out to people. So thank you very much for what you're doing and for having me on. I, I, I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 